Jazz! Jazz! He's, he was the greatest jazz saxophone player that ever lived! What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music! WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It's not just music. on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today uh, I'm so happy to have Charles Baxter here in the studio. Um, Can I call you Charlie? You, you absolutely <laughs> should. You must call me Charlie. That's the requirement. <laughs> well, Charlie, welcome. Thanks so much for doing, doing Thank this, you. coming to talk. Because you've actually, yesterday, you gave a reading at UMA's Apps, so a very... A, a, a big event. I did. A type of homecoming, in yes, a way. Yes, yes. And, and then you've also been quite busy today with a Q&A session, um, workshops with students. Um, so thank you. for. <laughs> and It's a great pleasure for me to be back here, really. To be back here on campus. To be back here on campus, to be back at WCBN, to be back down here in this wonderful grungy studio may i say that i i won't be carted away if i say that you won't and it's not an fcc violation no. so <laughs> all of the great radio stations have this sort of unkempt appearance i've never been into a radio station that was clean and neat they just repel that well i feel like if if that were to happen you might distrust it Exactly. It would be like a front. Exactly. It's not a real radio yeah. station. No. And they've got something else going yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> these places are like time machines also. Um, they're not... Well, who knows if they're up with the recent technology, but, but the, what they love is a technology from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the studios kind of reflect that. Are you looking at our, our organ and our, our piano? I am. And I am. The, the mounds it, of chords on the walls. It's a little the... like a museum in here. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it is, but but a living museum. We'll, yeah. we'll say that. Yeah. This yeah. is one at work. Right. One no. at work. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll call you up around fundraiser time, Charlie. All so, right. So that you can say a few words about the magic of, of radio. It's a deal. Mind? Okay. It's a deal. Um, well, okay. Well, 
before I get too carried away with that kind of magic, let's talk about the latest magic. You've got a, a, a short story collection coming out in February in of February. next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so 2015, mm-hmm. amazing, and, 2015. Mm-hmm. And if I could put in a plug for myself, um, for your listeners who are going to be in Ann Arbor in February, I will be back and I'm giving a reading at, uh, do you say... Nicola's? Nicola's. Nicola's, yeah. Nicola's Bookstore, and to the best of my memory, it's on February 19th. I think that's a Friday, and I'll be reading from the book and signing copies of it. Well, maybe if you're in town in time, come on back. Let's oh, I'd talk love again. to. I'd love to. <laughs> and so, and the book we're talking about, the collection, There's Something I Want You to Do. Yes. The, the title... Um, comes from my uh, thinking about the way a lot of dramatic elements in a story or a play get started. And uh, particularly, I had been at a production of Shakespeare's Hamlet, and I noticed that after the atmosphere in that play is created, the first event that really happens is that Hamlet's father arrives, the ghost of Hamlet's father arrives on the scene and more or less says, there's something I want you to do. I want you to avenge my death by killing Claudius. I want you to honor your mother. I want you to remember me and I want you to do all of this soon. <clears throat> and then I pretty needy ghost. A needy ghost, but he has his agenda, and it's interesting when people have agendas. Don't we all? Are we well, oh. we all do have agendas, and the fact is that when you're trying to think of a story, you're 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 trying to think of what the next thing to happen will be, and one of the problems for any short story writer, any dramatist, is to think what do I do in order to get people in my stories, the characters in my stories, to start creating trouble to start doing things and i thought the request moment there's something i want you to do and so this book has 10 stories and in each one of the stories at some point somebody says to somebody else there's something i want you to do and the stories can constitute a kind of decalogue The first five stories have the names of... Virtues. Virtues. Bravery, loyalty, charity, chastity, and forbearance. Then the second half, in which the same characters appear, are lust, sloth, gluttony, avarice, and vanity. Same characters in in those stories, but and then the, there's a the co- vices, and, and the vi- but they're the vices this time. And then there's a what, Charlie? There's what? a coda in which I appear walking along the Mississippi River near where I live now in Minneapolis, and I see all my characters out walking, walking or jogging or just passing by. I brush into them, I knock into them. And when did that coda happen in the? the making of There's Something I Want You to Do, the collection. I I thought the book needed something at the end. I thought that the last story, Vanity, ended too abruptly. I needed a way for the reader to climb down from the tree that 
had been growing or that I had built, whatever, I, you know, I, I want to mix my metaphor, <laughs> but I needed, I needed the reader to come back to earth. I could just read a, a moment or two of the coda. If, Wonderful. The Stone Arch Bridge crosses the Mississippi River between Father Hennepin Bluffs Park on the east bank and Mill Ruins Park on the west in the heart of Minneapolis. On warm days in late spring or summer, the bridge serves as a kind of promenade or gallery for pedestrians, and on such days you are likely to see both visitors and city dwellers walking across it with no particular destination in view. That obese man, for example, with rainbow suspenders, who is wearing a frown and a faraway look, and whose wife, they both have wedding rings, has her hand through his arm for support. Might he be a doctor or a pediatrician? Well, he is. That's Dr. Elijah Elliot Jones, who goes through several, who appears in many of, of the stories. And, and, and as a much younger self when you first meet him in Bravery, in, in the first story. In Bravery, he's young and handsome and fit, and he's a real fighter. And when you see him late in the book in Gluttony, he's the kind of guy who drives home from work in the car with a big bag of potato chips open in the seat next to him and he's reaching for the potato chips and they they cover his hand with with grease so he has to he has to rub his hands on the dashboard to get the grease off of them before he goes inside because he knows his wife is going to be checking so that's his version of armor all that's his version of armor all exactly Charlie, how did you, so you, you're setting this up for us, like the structure of the Decalogue with five and five. Mm -hmm. How did you decide, like, or, or when, when and how, like, how did that happen that, when did it start occurring to you that the stories that you've been making for the last 15 years, right? This is mm -hmm. sort of a, a long, mm -hmm. or even longer, because mm -hmm. last night at the reading, you said one of the stories, Loyalty, was even like maybe longer in the right um but when when did it start shaping in this way that it was going to be these virtues and vices and that they had to be five and five like almost the structure where you had all the virtue and then all the vice yeah yeah maybe this is too many in, questions no the 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 virtues and the vices this is not the classical decalogue uh, you know, the, there's a very specific list of virtues and a very specific list of vices. And this is not that. I had seen years ago um, a TV series made for Polish television by Klesowski called The Decalogue, in which he had taken the virtues and vices and had run them through a neighborhood in, I think it's Warsaw. And I had never forgotten that series. It's Brilliant, brilliant series. And I, I came to think that uh, the idea of doing a Decalogue in contemporary Amer America, a contemporary American fiction, was so bizarre an idea that absolutely nobody else was going to do it. Uh, and so I, I thought of this cast-aside story that I had worked on years ago which in those days I think I had called Flood... Well, it turned into a story called Flood Show, but this one 
uh, was about a, a woman who, after a pregnancy and giving birth, goes into a postpartum depression, can't bear to raise her own child, and leaves. And I didn't know where the story went. So I just put it aside. And about five years ago, I picked it up again and uh, began to work on it. And then I gave, I, I gave it the title Bravery because the boy in the story uses... Uh, uh, loyalty, excuse me. I sometimes get the the virtues mixed up. Um, he uses the word loyalty and... When speaking to his father. When speaking to his father. And I thought, that's very interesting, loyalty. I wonder if I could put a book together using virtues and vices to, to write around these moral qualities without actually engaging in moralism. I'm, I'm not delivering any sermons. I'm not telling anybody how to live. I'm just talking about how lust or avarice or chastity manifests itself in some of our lives. So the idea was rooted in the story that you had you hadn't been able to let go of or you wouldn't let go of that had sort of been waiting there for a while. And then when this moment with the character, when the son speaks to his father, when the mother returns years later, when he's about 17 or so, that became this key as a way to the making of these other stories. Exactly. I was talking to some of the graduate students today and trying to describe why it is that sometimes a writer will go back to materials that may be f f two years old, five years old, ten years old, in my case, almost 20 years old, I, this, or, or longer than that, because the manuscripts that I retrieved, I found I had typed on my typewriter. I hadn't even used my word processor. It was, <laughs> it was that old. But it still seemed to be alive in some sense. It had still the breath of life going through it, at least for me. And that's why I went back to it. And I thought, oh, I know who these characters are now. And trust that, right? Mm -hmm. To trust sure. the. Let's yeah. take a, a short break and maybe we can pick up on that when we return. Okay. T today on the program, Charles Baxter is here. We've got an advanced copy of There's Something I Want you to do. Um, Charles Baxter's latest collection of short stories out in February of next year. Um, we've got Stephanie behind the glass engineering for us. Um, we're going to take a short break and be right back.
if you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Charles Baxter is here in the studio. His latest collection of short stories, There's Something I Want You to Do. Um, Charlie, there's something I want you to do. Tell us about that song. Why did you pick the song for the program today? <laughs> I, I, I picked that song because the first time I ever heard it was in 1969 or 1970 when I was teaching fourth grade in Pinconning, Michigan, and I had come back to St. Paul, and some friends of mine who lived in St. Paul and were stoned 24-7 happened to have some great illegal substances which they shared with me, and they put on that song uh and uh and it was amazing it was it was totally amazing they had a fire going in the fireplace i just thought i was the happiest i've ever been and the song uh has eric eric clapton was part of the group cream so was ginger baker and um the musician who sat in on that particular song it was George Harrison, who is listed in the credits on the label as Langelo Mysterioso. I <laughs> kid you not. He's listed as the Mysterious Angel, but he's there. I think he plays rhythm guitar on that on a, that song. A mysterious Angel. A Mysterious Angel. He may have had a hand in writing it, for all I know. It's a, I, th- I think it's a great song. Cause, well, he's mysterious, so no, he, I, may uh, right. he, he may have. He may have. Well, thanks for picking the songs for yeah, today's show. Yeah, yeah. Um, My pleasure. The DJing part. Yeah. And thanks to Stephanie for finding yeah. all of them, yeah. too. And um, You know, before we go any further, Charlie, I'm going to read um, the short bio on the back of There's Something I Want You to Do. Um out with Pantheon, and a quick thanks to to Jordan uh, Jordan Rodman at, at um, Pantheon Books for sending a copy of this. Charles Baxter is the author of the novels The Feast of Love, nominated for the National Book Award, The Soul Thief, Saul and Patsy, Shadow Play, and First Light, and the story collections Believers, A Relative Stranger, Through the Safety Net, Griffin, and Harmony of the World. He lives in Minneapolis and teaches at the University of Minnesota and in the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College um, and taught fourth grade in Pinconning, in Pinconning, Michigan, Pinconning Michigan, which, if your listeners don't know Michigan very well, is north of Flint and Saginaw and Bay City. It's, it's ah. on the Saginaw Bay. So some of the landscape of the Saul and Patsy stories is absolutely directly from there. It's it's as flat as the Great Plains when you get up to that part of the state. And the reason it's flat is that Lake Huron once was oh, occupied. Pl- occupied that land. Uh, and it's it doesn't look like the rest of Michigan. Western Michigan is hilly. Northwestern Michigan and the UP mm-hmm. have their their hills, almost something they call the mountains. But where I taught, no, no, it was just <laughs> flat. The the just classic flat. Midwestern classic Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then after that, that's when you. After well, you decided to go back to grad school and go to Buffalo. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and I'm sure we talked about this the last time, Charlie, so we, forgive me, but mm. I just wanted to, also, that moment, like when you were at Buffalo there, it seemed like there was all these kind of amazing a confluence of all these people that came through and intellectual, like anarchists almost. And an example you gave was Bob Hess was teaching like English literature and then there was... He was teaching was, the novel. Oh, the novel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, he had just... I think he was working on his dissertation or had uh, finished it at Stanford and come to Buffalo. Uh, and he he was starting a family there and, as I say, teaching the English novel and writing poetry, which included a poem I remember, Lament for the Poles of Buffalo. Uh and many of the poems that are in his first book, Field Guide, he wrote in Buffalo. Yeah, John Barth was there, Donald Barthelme was there, uh, Charles Olson, the poet, had been there just before oh. I arrived. Um, James Wright taught there during the summer. Michel Foucault came in through and taught a course during the summer. Uh, Derrida was was around a lot. Hélène Sixou. Uh, I like how you say it, was around a lot. Yeah, all of these people passed through, and I I thought, who wants to be in the Ivy Leagues? I want to be right here in Buffalo. The thing about being in a place like that was there were so many brilliant people doing, doing so many different kinds of weird things that any idea had a shelf life of about a week. And then another big idea would take its place. <laughs> and you ended up not being frightened of ideas. You know, any, any idea that anybody could come at you with, you'd think, oh, Okay, that's an interesting idea. What what's your next idea? And that more and maybe even having faith that more would come. Yeah. So you the, don't have to just hunker in right. on that one idea. Right. The other thing about that program was that there was no creative writing division as such. The idea was you'd get a PhD here, you'd also take creative writing classes, uh, and some of the creative writing staff like i mean they weren't staff robert creeley never taught creative writing he didn't want to do it some of the academic staff did want to teach creative writing murray schwartz who was a, a psychoanalyst wanted to teach uh creative writing classes so from time to time and he, he was did a psychoanalyst yeah yeah and it, it, it was <laughs> uh, well he was teaching psychoanalytic criticism no it was a great place it was a great place. And so those were some of more like another stage of your formative years in some ways, like it, things that were happening to you in your mind. It taught me a good lesson, which is that you shouldn't feel as if writing poems and writing criticism are absolutely separate activities, that uh, you need to ghettoize one or the other. You can be a poet, you can be a critic, you can be a fiction writer, you can you can do academic work. You shouldn't feel as if you can only do one or the other. And so and that's what you've you've done. I've tried to. So because you have a bit of everything, Charlie. I've tried. And, S and, S and and great talks that you deliver as well, right? Like on on losing 
the one that you gave for the hop the hopwood talk that was oh yes yes yeah yeah um uh, losers oh, losers. losers it was called well i had always been struck by the fact that um the hopwood awards as great and wonderful and historic and encouraging as they are to many many of the students who have passed through the university of michigan have also produced losers. <laughs> that competition has resulted in, in a number of cases in which somebody sends something in, it doesn't win, and that man or that woman goes away feeling, I'm such a loser. And I wanted to, and I did, give a talk in which I said, this is literature, there are no winners and there are no losers, and it's a category mistake to think that there are. And I love that it was a talk at the award ceremony because yeah. it felt right. <laughs> it felt yeah. really. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. So can we go back for a moment to this idea of the breath of life? <laughs> sure. This very yeah. <laughs> big idea of the breath yeah. of life. Because you were mentioning it, it before the break, Charlie, when mm-hmm. um, sometimes you don't know where the breath of life is in the Like, well, you sometimes can feel it in a work. Mm-hmm. How do you like? Uh, and then you have to trust it. Yeah. Well, what we're talking about is the Spirit. A religious person would say the Holy Spirit. And is is the Spirit traveling through a piece of imaginative writing? If it is, I think you can tell. It, it feels as if something in the words, something in the sequence, something in the poem, something in the story is truly alive. Something is happening right in front of you, whether it's a thought or an event or dialogue or whatever it may be. I think that writers who spend too much time trying to um, decide what their work means before they actually write it sometimes keep the breath of life from flowing through the work. And it might be very artfully made, Mm -hmm. but it might not have the breath of life. Great writers have written stories and novels that lack it. Uh, The the example I gave earlier today was uh, a novel called Ship of Fools, which... Most people, I think, have not read anymore. It's by a great writer named Catherine Ann Porter, whose stories are some of the best ever written by an American, as good as or better than Hemingway's. It's not a competition, but they're good. <laughs> but her, her. But you'd n- give her the hopwood. No, I'm just I, I, I'd give her the hopwood. I'd give her the hopwood in a minute. But the the novel, if you open it and read it, I mean, it's brilliantly written, but it's dead because she's decided ahead of time what everything means in it. She she hasn't given herself over to uncertainty. And I think the reason that happened was that she spent some time in Nazi Germany, and she decided on Earth there are really villains, and on Earth there are really heroes. And in fiction, in literature, we have to make the two separate and make it clear who's who, that we shouldn't have ambiguity. And given the fact that she had spent time in Nazi Germany, she had earned the right to think that. And that's what 
the the vehicle of the novel was yes. how that yes. what she decided how she because the stories somehow were different. Mm-hmm. The stories were different, but the novel just sets up these people over here are good, these people over there are not, and you think, well, that's very interesting, but it's not really living on the page. So is this part of the project of there's something I want you to do um, because you're showing these sides of the same characters? No, I just want to mix it up. I'm, I'm not trying to tell any reader who's good and who isn't. <clears throat> in, in the story Lust, for example, a guy is visiting his dying friend. They're both in their 30s. And his dying friend is intensely interested in his friend's love life. And so the friend goes in and starts to tell his dying friend all of these stories about his sexual escapades. And I think there are occasions in a person's life when lust is what gives you life. It's not entirely a vice. There are times when, in a strange way, it may empower you and it will lead to greater things. It'll lead to love. But where's I, I just think it's interesting to mix these categories up. Yeah, it's not as if it's this is a bad thing. So you're not trying to say this no. is a vice. This no. is what these stories are exploring is how it's could be a lifeline or it could be exactly a a, a, a beacon. Let's see, what other thing can I trot out? Some cliche <laughs> a beacon, a lifeline. You know what? It's time for a break. Not a moment too soon, right, Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> Today on Living Writers, Charles Baxter is here. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Charlie Baxter. Charles Baxter. Charlie is here. This music. This music was um, 
Shostakovich's Prelude and Fugue in A Major, Prelude and Fugue Number no. Seven. It's part of a, a group of preludes and fugues that he wrote in the, uh, I believe, in the early 1950s, uh, when still he wasn't in fear of his life anymore from Stalin, but he had been deeply threatened and. So much of his music is gloomy, but this particular piece is one of the most joyful and happy uh, instances of music that I know. When there was some interest in making a film of The Feast of Love, uh, the then director, a woman named Patricia Rosema, asked me if I had any ideas about music to go with the movie she thought she might make, and I said yes. Shostakovich's Prelude and Fugue in A Major, and she got a copy of it, and she listened to it over and over again for two or three days straight. She lives, her partner is a, is a composer, and they just went crazy over that music. <laughs> and did it make it into the Feast of Love then? No, because she uh, she was she not the director. Be, she, her okay. version of of the movie was never made, and it changed studios. It went from Miramax over oh, to um, Lakeshore and MGM. And the person who finally did make a, a movie of it was a director named Robert Benton. I do. I I think I rem remember you mentioning this. Charlie, the last time we spoke, but and he probably didn't get a chance to listen to that song, so it might not have made it into the the movie in the same way. I don't think so. He, I'm not sure that he, if he had wanted to include it in the movie, that he would have had the power to to do so. We shouldn't talk about no, no, no. We won't. <laughs> about that. I, have you ever driven down the uh, the a country road with this? blaring that music oh are you kidding oh man <laughs> uh just full blast doesn't every everybody should do that you know usually we live in apartments or condos and you can't turn the music up as loudly as you'd like it to be but you can do that in your car as long as you're not downtown <laughs> but if you're playing that song maybe you yeah. want to say come on everybody yeah but yeah. i guess that's how everyone feels when they play their favorite song out loud that's right. everyone should love this yeah, yeah. you this should moment. be as happy as i am in this very moment yeah. this very charlie will you read something for us from there's something i want you to do sure i, I i'll read something from the story called chastity and i'm doing so because I think a lot of people who have been seen the uh, book are very curious about what chastity could possibly be in our time. You know, they just think, does that mean somebody who won't sleep with somebody else? And my feeling is, no. The form that chastity has taken in our own time is that of irony. And so in my story, the person who is chaste, who practices chastity, is a young woman who is suicidal and is a stand-up comedian. And the first time uh, my other character, whose name is Benny Takamitsu, runs into her, he's been taking his evening walk. And he crosses the Washington Avenue Bridge, 
And this is what happens. Crossing the bridge on the pedestrian level, he counted the number of people on foot. He liked taking inventories. Solid figures reassured him. About seven people were out tonight, including one guy with a backpack sprinting in Benny's direction, two people strolling, and a young woman with a vaguely studenty appearance who stood motionless, leaning against the railing and staring down at the water. The sodium lights gave them all an orange-tan tint. The young woman tapped her fingers along the guardrail, took out a cell phone, and after taking a picture of herself, dropped the phone into the river below. She licked her lips and laughed softly as the phone disappeared into the dark. Benny stopped. Something was about to happen. As he watched, she gathered herself up and with a quick athletic movement hoisted herself over so that she was standing on the railing's other side with her arms braced on the metalwork behind her. If she released her arms and leaned forward, she would plunge down into the river. One jogger went past her without noticing what she was doing. What was she doing? Benny hurried toward her. Seeing him out of the corner of her eye, she turned and smirked. Stop, he commanded. Wait, don't. He wasn't sure what to say. What are you doing? Who are you? I'm nobody, she said. Who are you? I'm just Benny, he said. That's dangerous, what you're doing. Please, why are you doing that? No reason. For fun. A cheap thrill. I'm bungee jumping, she said, only without the bungee. See the cord? She pointed down to where no cord was visible. Just kidding. It's imaginary. Also, I've been feeling real cold behind my eyes, she said. So I thought I'd do something exciting to heat myself up. Her speech style was oddly animated, and she seemed very pretty in a drab sort of way, like an honorable mention beauty queen who hadn't taken proper care of herself. Something was off in the grooming department. Her long brown hair fell over her shoulders, and her T-shirt had a corporate logo and the words, Just Do It, across the front. Her eyes, when she glanced at Benny, were deep and penetrating. She gave off a shadowy gleam. I've been feeling kind of temporary lately. She said, how about you, Benny? You've been feeling permanent? Thanks, Charlie. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you read that. <laughs> Sorry, I seem to have put a stop to the show. <laughs> well, well, often I'm, I'm more prepared because I would have had a chance. The book, I should say, just kindly Jordan overnighted it mm -hmm. to me so that I could have it and be able to, um, but I haven't been able to, You obviously. haven't read it, so we, you so actually was, don't know yeah. what, what happens to Benny Takamitsu, the architect, and Sarah Lemming, the woman he has met on the bridge. He takes her home, takes her back to her place. They 
become lovers, sort of, but she has a condition for their lovemaking, which is that she won't kiss him. And he accepts this condition. uh, And at one point in the story, she says, there's something I want you to do. And of course she does. Of course she does. And he says, what is that? And she says, I want you to design a house in which, I could, in which people could be happy. And she means it partly as a goof, and she means it partly as an actual thing. Late in the story, uh, she has a gig at a stand-up club, at a comedy club in Minneapolis and she gets up on stage and tells the audience that she's pregnant which she hasn't told Benny uh, but is she he in is. the audience? Mm-hmm. He is? He's in the audience. Uh, well, you can read we the can story. We can read everyone. So, yeah, well, you can read the story. Oh, that's kind of, now that's kind of mean though because now we've said it's in February. This is, this is called um, a tease. <laughs> Okay. Uh, this is the sort of thing that people do in order to get other people to dry, to buy the book. <laughs> this, we're just talking merchandising here, or as Mel Brooks says, merchandising, merchandising. And this is and the book that this story is in. There's some something I want you to do, um, and this is out with Pantheon in February. Um, and you'll be back in town. Nicholas Books, February nineteenth. That's right. We're thinking right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in the story, you actually, I think, that you've got her saying, I'm nobody, and who are you, Or, but I'm nobody. And I feel like, is that an echo, or does that connect somehow to the story Shelter, where, um, from an earlier collection? Where- Absolutely, yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. I because I'm just wondering because there's that connection through time of and where the character says, also, and he's he's a homeless man here on the streets of Ann Arbor, at I think Washington and State, mm-hmm. and Cooper, the main character, mm-hmm. meets him, and tries to get him to say a name. He can't, and and eventually he does say, his mother called him James. That's right. But That's before right. he says, I'm nobody, doesn't mm-hmm. he? I think that when you're in great spiritual and psychic difficulty and somebody asks you who you are, the temptation may be to say, I'm not here. I'm nobody. And it's actually a quote from Emily Dickinson. Yes. From one of her poems. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? So, I, you know, I think that in, in our own time, we may constitute a community. Those of us who have at one time or another in our lives felt, what is it? It's a kind of emptiness. You know, most I won't say most people, but a lot of people go through their lives without having this feeling. Do but they? I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak for other people. I can only speak for myself and what I've seen in others. But I think it's a, enough of a real sensation, a real experience, that when I have a character who's in 
distress, one of the ways I've had to express it is to have that person say, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I'm not here. I'm not here. Another thing that she says, which is also a quote, another thing that, that Sarah says in the passage I just read is, I've been feeling kind of temporary lately. That's from Death of a Salesman. It's a quotation from Arthur Miller. Uh, Willie Loman comes home, and Linda asks him how he is, and he says, I've been feeling kind of temporary lately. And the last time I saw that play, I saw it on Broadway with Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Willie Loman. And I had seen that play many times before, but that line had never registered on me until Philip Seymour Hoffman said it. And once he said it, I never, I thought, I'm never going to forget this. And apparently Philip Seymour Hoffman had been feeling kind of temporary lately. Let's take a short break and then we'll be back. Um, Today on the program, Charles Baxter is here. Um, We've got a book that's going to be rather permanent once you can get it in your hands, everyone. There's something I want you to do. Um, You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Charles Baxter is here. We've got his collection of stories. There's something I want you to do on the table. Also, Griffin, new and selected stories um, on the table here with us. And Charlie, you've been in town, like we said, you gave you, you gave a reading yesterday, and you've been busy today <laughs> um, with more campus-related wonderful activities. And tomorrow, you will be um, part of the symposium, A Janice-Faced Habit, The Art of Teaching and the Teaching of Art, a symposium in honor of Nicholas Delbanco. Um, and this will be tomorrow at Rackham Amphitheater, um, beginning at 2 o'clock, it looks like. And then you'll have a conversation. You'll be in conversation um, with with Nick Del Banco at five thirty, I believe five thirty to six thirty. That's right. Does that sound? Mm-hmm. But you'll be there at the symposium all all day. I'll be there all day. What your listeners may not know is that I lived in Ann Arbor from nineteen seventy four through two thousand three. Uh, many years here and. When I I had 
taught for 15 years at Wayne State in Detroit, and then I was hired to teach in the MFA program. Uh, in 1989, and I taught in the MFA program from 1989 to 2002, I think. And during that time, uh, I had a colleague, Nicholas Del Banco, who was a, f a, f a friend, a fellow artist, a generous human being who had helped to establish this MFA program and has gone on, really, to build it into what it is now. This Really, this mag one of the most um, prominent MFA programs in the country. And Nick did this at the same time that he was writing novels, book of, books of short stories, memoirs, travel books. Textbooks. Textbooks. <laughs> Um, plays. He wrote a screenplay that was filmed. Not everybody knows that about him. Uh, he's a he's an old time. I, I'm not going to say he's old, but he's an old time person of letters. You know, there isn't anything criticism re reviews that Nick hasn't tried his hand at and done wonderful work in. And so, it, and, and he's retiring. And, and so he's retiring. This, so we're doing this this tribute, this symposium, and many yeah. many former students yes. of Nick's, and also and your students. They're they're coming back, and there'll be panels and conversations. And that's right. Um, that's right. So. These these wonderful novelists, Valerie Lakin, friend of the show, friend of the show, <laughs> William Lychak. Uh, Michael Paternitti. Um, oh, they're they're just they're they're terrific writers, and they're coming back to do honor to Nick. So it'll be a great day tomorrow, and open to everyone, open, open to, to the everyone. public, um, beginning at two o'clock. Again, as we said, it's at Rackham Amphitheater, uh, nine fifteen East Washington Street, and that's tomorrow. Thursday. And so, and it's called, and then you'll be, and you can come and see uh, Charlie Baxter in conversation with Nicholas Delbanco at 5 30, 6 30, mm -hmm. um, and also at Rackham um, Amphitheater. Uh, and it's the Janice Faced Habit, the art of teaching and the teaching of art. Um, it, interesting. Does, does the Janice Faced Habit connect directly to, to Nicholas Delbanco's? own work because I wasn't able to find that in the research but I thought it was an interesting um, image like an in, uh, I don't know who came up with it uh, I mean the idea sure. the I, idea I of the Janus face figure is that of two faces He's, looking in opposite directions perhaps to the past perhaps to the future past and future I think the idea also is in this case that as much as the previous generations thought that teaching and the production of art were separate and contradictory, Nick, Nicholas Del Banco and my generation of writers, we've all felt that uh, we, we must learn to succeed at both if we can. Uh, and that writing 
and teaching, or just the production of art, the creation of art and teaching shouldn't contradict each other. There's no reason in the world that you can't be a good human being and do both. I was here at the university when one member of the department, long since retired, looked at me and scowled and said, don't you think you would have written many more books if you hadn't been a teacher? He thought it was a terrible idea for, for writers to um, take shelter in universities. And I said, well, I might have written one or two more books, but so what? How would that have been better than what it was that I actually did? And he scowled at me. Uh, again. More scowling. Yeah. And it's because those male writers after the Second World War, those men, those white men, mostly in their lives did not teach. They went into business or they just cranked books out in order to support themselves and their families. And this guy thought that's the way it should be. But that has never been the way it has been for women, and it's not the way it has been mostly for writers of my generation or the ones that have followed either. Uh, many of us, not all of us, but many of us have worked in universities and have been happy for the kind of work we've been offered and have been able to do. It's interesting that you use the word shelter. Yeah, um, and I can... Imagine some people saying, oh, you're afraid of the world. You don't want to live in the world. You want to be sheltered in the university. And maybe there's a bit of truth in that. But it can be a pretty tough world here. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true enough. But I, I, I think, you know, sooner or later, no matter where you are, no matter where you're living or how you're making your living, life is going to get its claws into you. You don't have to be working on a steamboat in order to know what life will do to you. You don't, you may want to work in a factory, you may want to do, you, you should, everybody should travel, but there, literature doesn't require any particular necessity of anybody except that you love it and you read it and you think about it and that you write it. So devotion. Devotion is exactly it. No, doesn't require anything else. Mm -mm. No. <laughs> I'm glad we've got that straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're in town for this symposium, and you're going, this conversation that, that uh, you and Nicholas Stilbanko will have tomorrow, Charlie, are you, is it, I mean, that's kind of interesting because it's an hour long, mm -hmm. and it's, over, as you said, this is this is a person, a colleague, a friend that you've known over so many years. That how how do you um, how do you approach a public conversation in that way? Well, I can divulge my opening question. My opening a teaser. My here's the teaser. My question to him will be: Our subject is today teaching and writing and the models that we once had in order to start doing what we wanted to do. Who were 
your models. Did you model yourself on anybody? Or were you self-created? I mean, I think I know the answer to that question. I don't think anybody is self-created, but I'm interested to know how a working writer, a, a, a human being who has been writing and publishing for what? Uh, almost 50 years now, how he would answer that question. Me too. So I'll go tomorrow at 5.30. How tomorrow. would you answer it? Oh, I, I can answer it fairly easily. I had, I had some teachers whose work I admired and loved. There were a, a certain number of books I had started I had read in high school and college and then in graduate school, and they had inspired in me the feeling of emulation. I just thought, I want to do that. Who? J.R. Salamanca. Davis Grubb. Fyodor Dostoevsky. And then Catherine Ann Porter. Eudora Welty. I mean, at this point, I can start. There's just a list, and the list begins to go on and on. James Baldwin, um, all the great. Uh, the older you get, the more the greatness of some writers becomes apparent to you. And it's both disabling and inspiring. Thank you, Charlie Baxter, so much for talking with me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, T. See you in February. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thanks, everyone, for listening out there. Thanks to Stephanie for engineering. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
tea. The milkman, the paper boy, the evening TV. You miss your old familiar. That's a beautiful header right there. Snap looks into the end zone. Touchdown, Devin Funches. And the crowd here at Michigan Stadium loving it. Oh, Finally, the fruits of their labor paying off, Absolutely getting a goal. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, Andrew Hausman, and we have almost a full house on the other side of the glass with Leo Blavin, Morris Fabry, and Chris Banner. Quite an exciting day of Michigan sports. Obviously, if you haven't heard the news by now, you probably were living under a rock. Brady Hoke has been dismissed as the head football coach, and Michigan picked up a crucial basketball victory in the non-conference last night. We had the the call for you on WCBN radio, and uh, make sure you listen to the replay of Leo Blavin and CJ Stone on Ustream TV. Quite an exciting call. Michigan held on for a 68-65 victory. They almost choked it away several times down the stretch. What were your thoughts on this game? Well, I thought that it, more than anything, showed just the emergence of Spike Albrecht as a guy who Michigan can rely on if 